Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. Chapter 8 You're punctual to time, Mr. Brand, said the voice of Amos. But, lash man, what have you done to your breeks and your boots? You're not just very respectable in your appearance. I wasn't. The confounded rocks of the coolant had left their mark on my shoes, which, moreover, had not been clean for a week. "'and the same hills had rent my jacket at the shoulders "'and torn my trousers above the right knee "'and stained every part of my apparel with, with peat and lichen. "'I cast myself on the bank beside Amos and lit my pipe. "'Did you get my message?' I asked. "'Aye, it's gone on by a sure hand to the destination we can of. "'You've managed well, Mr. Brand, but I wish you were back in London.' "'He sucked at his pipe, and the shaggy brows were pulled so low "'as to hide the wary eyes.' Then he proceeded to think aloud. "'You cannot go back by my leg. I don't just understand why, but they're looking for you down that line. It's a vexatious business when your friends, meaning the police, are doing their best to upset your plans and you're not able to enlighten them. I could send word to the chief constable and get you through to London without a stop, like a load of fish from Aberdeen, but that would be spoiling the fine character you've been at such pains to construct. Nah, nah. "'Yamon, take the risk and travel by Muirtown without any credentials.' "'It can't be a very big risk,' I interpolated. "'I'm not so sure. Gresson's left the Tobermory. "'He went by here yesterday on the Maylake boat, "'and there was a wee black-avised man with him that got out at the Kyle. "'He's there still, stopping at the hotel. "'They call him Linkletter, and he travels in whiskey. "'I don't like the looks of him. "'But Gresson does not suspect me.' "'Maybe, no. "'But you would not like him to see you hereaways. "'You gentry don't leave Muckle to chance. "'Be very certain that every man in Gresson's lot "'kens all about you "'and has your description down to the mole on your chin.' "'Then they've got it wrong,' I replied. "'I was speaking figuratively,' said Amos. "'I was considering your case the feck of yesterday, "'and I brought the best I could do for you in the gig. "'I wish you was more respectable clad.' "'but a good topcoat will hide deficiencies.' "'From behind the gig's seat "'he pulled out an ancient Gladstone bag "'and revealed its contents. "'There was a bowler of a vulgar and antiquated style. "'There was a ready-made overcoat of some dark cloth "'of the kind that a clerk wears on the road to the office. "'There was a pair of detachable celluloid cuffs, "'and there was a linen collar and dicky. "'Also there was a small hand-case "'such as bagmen carry on their rounds. "'That's your luggage.' "'said Amos, with pride. "'That wee bag's full of samples. "'You'll mind I took the precaution of measuring you in Glasgow "'so that things will fit. "'You've got a new name, Mr. Brand, "'and I've taken a room for you in the hotel on the strength of it. "'You're Archibald McCaskey, "'and you're travelling for the firm of Todd, Sons and Brothers of Edinburgh. "'You can the folk. "'They published the religious books "'that you've been trying to sell for Sabbath school prizes "'to the Free Kirk ministers in Skye. "'The notion amused Amos.' "'and he relapsed into the somber chuckle "'which with him did duty for a laugh. "'I put my hat and waterproof in the bag "'and donned the bowler and the topcoat. "'They fitted fairly well. "'Likewise the cuffs and collar. "'Though here I struck a snag, "'for I had lost my scarf somewhere in the coolin, "'and Amos, pelican-like, "'had to surrender the rusty black tie "'which adorned his own person. "'It was a queer rig, "'and I felt like nothing on earth in it, "'but Amos was satisfied.' "'Mr. McCaskey, sir,' he said, "'you're the very model of a publisher's traveller. "'You'd better learn a few biographical details, "'which you may be forgotten. 
"'You're an Edinburgh man, "'but you were some years in London, "'which explains the way you speak. "'You bide at six Russell Street, "'off the meadows, "'and you're an elder in the Nethergate U.F. Kirk. "'Have you any special taste "'you can lead the crack onto "'if you're engaged in a conversation?' "'I suggested the English classics. "'Ah, very suitable. "'You can try politics, too. "'You'd better be a free trader, "'but converted by Lloyd George. "'That's a common case.' "'and you'll need to be by ordinary common. "'If I was you, I would daunder about here for a bit "'and no arrive at your hotel till after dark. "'Then you can have your supper and gang to bed. "'The Muir Town train leaves at half seven in the morning. "'Nah, you can't come with me. "'It wouldn't do for us to be seen together. "'If I meet you in the street, "'I'll never let on that I know you.' "'Amos climbed into the gig and jolted off home.' I went down to the shore and sat among the rocks, finishing about tea-time the remains of my provisions. In the yellow gloaming, I strolled into the clake and got a boat to put me over to the inn. It proved to be a comfortable place, with a motherly old landlady who showed me to my room and promised ham and eggs and cold salmon for supper. After a good wash, which I needed, and an honest attempt to make my clothes presentable, I descended to the meal in a coffee-room lit by a single, dim, paraffin lamp. The food was excellent, and as I ate, my spirits rose. In two days I should be back in London beside Blink Iron and somewhere within a day's journey of Mary. I could picture no scene now without thinking how Mary fitted into it. For her sake I held Biggleswick delectable, because I'd seen her there. I wasn't sure if this was love, but it was something I'd never dreamed of before, something which I now hugged the thought of. It made the whole earth rosy and golden for me, and life so well worth living "'that I felt like a miser towards the days to come. "'I had about finished supper "'when I was joined by another guest. "'Seen in the light of that infamous lamp, "'he seemed a small, alert fellow "'with a bushy, black moustache "'and black hair parted in the middle. "'He had fed already "'and appeared to be hungering for human society. "'In three minutes he had told me "'that he had come down from Portree "'and was on his way to Leith. "'A minute later he had whipped out a card "'on which read, "'J.J. Linklater.' and in the corner the name of Heatherwick Brothers. His accent betrayed that he hailed from the West. "'I've been up among the distilleries,' he informed me. "'It's a poor business distilling in these times, with the teetotalers yelling about the nation's shame and the way to lose the war. I'm a temperate man myself, but I would think shame to spoil decent folks' business. If the government wants to stop the drink, let them buy us out. They've permitted us to invest good money in the trade, and they must see that we get it back.' The other way will wreck public credit. That's what I say. Supposing some labor government takes the notion that soap's bad for the nation, are they going to shut up port sunlight, or good clothes, or lum hats? There's no end to their daftness if they once start on that track. A lawful trade's a lawful trade, says I, and it's contrary to public policy to put it at the mercy of wing cranks. Do you know agree, sir? By the way, I have not got your name. I told him. "'and he rambled on. "'We're blenders and do a very high-class business, "'mostly foreign. "'The wars hit us with our export trade, of course, "'but we're not as bad as some. "'What's your line, Mr. McCaskey?' "'When he heard, he was keenly interested. "'Do you say so? "'You're from Todd's. "'Man, I was in the book business myself "'till I changed it for something a wee bit more lucrative. "'I was on the road for three years for Andrew Matheson. "'You ken the name. "'Petermaster Rowe.' I forgot the number. I had a kind of an ambition to start a bookselling shop of my own and to make 
Linklater or Paisley a big name in the trade. But I got the offer from Hatherwick's, and I was wanting to get married. So Filthy Lucre won the day, and I'm no sorry I changed. If it had not been for this war, I'd have been making four figures with my salary and commission. My pipe's out. Have you one of those rare and valuable curiosities called a spunk, Mr. McCaskey? He was a merry little grig of a man, and he babbled on till I announced my intention of going to bed. If this was Amos's bagman, who had been seen in company with Gresson, I understood how idle may be the suspicions of a clever man. He had probably foregathered with Gresson on the sky boat, and wearied that saturnine soul with his cackle. I was up betimes, paid my bill, ate a breakfast of porridge and fresh haddock, and walked a few hundred yards to the station. It was a warm, thick morning, with no sun visible, and the sky hills misty to their base. The three coaches on the little train were nearly filled when I had bought my ticket, and I selected a third-class smoking carriage which held four soldiers returning from leave. The train was already moving when a late passenger hurried along the platform and clambered in beside me. A cheery, "'Marnin', Mr. McCaskey,' revealed my fellow guest at the hotel." We jolted away from the coast up the broad glen and then on to a wide expanse of bog with big hills showing towards the north. It was a drowsy day, and in that atmosphere of shag and crowded humanity I felt my eyes closing. I had a short nap and woke to find that Mr. Linklater had changed his seat and was now beside me. "'We'll no get a Scotsman to a muir town,' he said. "'Have you nothing in your samples you could give me to read?' I had forgotten about the samples." I opened the case and found the oldest collection of little books, all in gay bindings. Some were religious, with names like Dew of Hermon and Cool Siloam. Some were innocent narratives, How Tommy Saved His Pennies, A Missionary Child in China, and Little Susie and Her Uncle. There was a life of David Livingstone, a child's book on seashells, and a richly gilt edition of the poems of one James Montgomery. I offered the selection to Mr. Linklater, "'who grinned and chose the missionary child. "'It's not the reading I'm accustomed to,' he said. "'I like strong meat, Hall Kane and Jack London. "'By the way, how'd you square this business of yours with the booksellers? "'When I was in Matheson's there would have been trouble "'if we had dealt direct with the public like you.' "'The confounded fellow started to talk about the details of the book trade, "'of which I knew nothing. "'He wanted to know on what terms we sold juveniles "'and what discount we gave the big wholesalers.' "'and what class of book we put out on sale. "'I didn't understand a word of his jargon, "'and I must have given myself away badly, "'for he asked me questions about firms of which I'd never heard, "'and I had to make some kind of answer. "'I told myself that the donkey was harmless "'and that his opinion of me mattered nothing. "'But as soon as I decently could, "'I pretended to be absorbed in Pilgrim's Progress, "'a gaudy copy of which was among the samples. "'It opened at the episode of Christian and Hopeful "'in the Enchanted Ground,' and in that stuffy carriage I presently followed the example of heedless and too bold, and fell sound asleep. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to Mr. Stanfast, Chapter 8. I was awakened by the train rumbling over the points of a little moorland junction. Sunk in pleasing lethargy, I sat with my eyes closed, and then covertly took a glance at my companion. He had abandoned the missionary child and was reading a little dun-colored book, "'and marking passages with a pencil. "'His face was absorbed, and it was a new face, "'not the vacant, good-humoured look of the garrulous bagman, "'but something shrewd, purposeful, and formidable. "'I remained hunched up as if still sleeping, "'and tried to see what the book was, "'but my eyes, good as they are, 
could make out nothing of the text or title, except that I had a very strong impression that the book was not written in the English tongue. I woke abruptly and leaned over to him. Quick as lightning, he slid his pencil up his sleeve and turned on me with a fatuous smile. "'What do you make of this, Mr. McCaskey? It's a wee book I picked up at a rope, along with fifty others. I paid five shillings for the lot. It looks like German, but in my young days they did not teach us foreign languages.' I took the thing and turned over the pages, trying to keep any sign of intelligence out of my face. It was German right enough, a little manual of hydrography with no publisher's name on it. It had the look of a kind of textbook a government department might issue to its officials. I handed it back. It's either German or Dutch. I'm not much of a scholar, barring a little French and the Latin I got at Harriet's hospital. This is an awful slow train, Mr. Linklater. The soldiers were playing nap, and the bagman proposed a game of cards. I remembered in time that I was an elder at the Nethergate UF Church and refused with some asperity. After that I shut my eyes again, for I wanted to think out this new phenomenon. The fellow knew German, that was clear. He had also been seen in Gresson's company. I didn't believe he suspected me, though I suspected him profoundly. It was my business to keep strictly to my part and give him no cause to doubt me. He was clearly practicing his own part on me, and I must appear to take him literally on his professions. So presently I woke up and engaged him in a disputatious conversation about the morality of selling strong liquors. He responded readily and put the case for alcohol with much point and vehemence. The discussion interested the soldiers, and one of them, to show he was on Linklater's side, produced a flask and offered him a drink. I concluded by observing morosely that the bagman had been a better man when he peddled books for Alexander Matheson, and that put the closure on the business. That train was a record. It stopped at every station, and in the afternoon it simply got tired and sat down in the middle of a moor and reflected for an hour. I stuck my head out of the window now and then and smelt the rooty fragrance of bogs, and when we halted on a bridge I watched the trout in the pools of the Brown River. Then I slept and smoked alternately and began to get furiously hungry. Once I woke to hear the soldiers discussing the war. There was an argument between a lance corporal in the Camerons and a sapper private about some trivial incident on the Somme. "'I tell you, I was there,' said the Cameron. "'We were relieving the Black Watch, and Fritz was shelling the road. "'We did not get up to the line till one o'clock in the morning. "'Frey Frickout Circus to the south end of the High Wood "'is every bit of five miles.' "'Not a boon three, said the sapper, dogmatically. "'Man, I've tramped it. "'Same here. I took up wire every night for a week.' "'The Cameron looked moodily around the company. "'I wish there was another man here that kept the place. "'He would bear me out.' "'These boys are no good, but they did not join till later. "'I tell you, it's five mile. Three, said the sapper. "'Tempers were rising, for each of the disputants felt his veracity assailed. "'It was too hot for a quarrel, and I was so drowsy that I was heedless. "'Shut up, you fools,' I said. "'The distance is six kilometers, so you're both wrong.' "'My tone was so familiar to the men that it stopped the wrangle, "'but it was not the tone of a publisher's traveller.' Mr. Linklater cocked his ears. "'What's a kilometer, Mr. McCaskey?' he asked blandly. "'Multiply by five and divide by eight, and you get the miles.' I was on my guard now, and told a long story of a nephew who had been killed in the Somme, and how I had corresponded with the war office about his case. "'Besides,' I said, "'I'm a great student of the newspapers, and I've read all the books about the war. It's a difficult time, this for us all. 
"'and if you can take a serious interest in the campaign, it helps a lot. "'I mean working out the places on the map "'and reading Haig's dispatches.' "'Just so,' he said dryly, "'and I thought he watched me with an odd look in his eyes. "'A fresh idea possessed me. "'This man had been in Gresson's company, and he knew German. "'He was obviously something very different from what he professed to be. "'What if he were in the employ of our own secret service?' I had appeared out of the void at the Kyle, and I had made but a poor appearance as a bagman, showing no knowledge of my own trade. I was in an area interdicted to the ordinary public, and he had good reason to keep an eye on my movements. He was going south, and so was I. Clearly, we must somehow part company. We change at Muirtown, don't we? I asked. When does the train for the south leave? He consulted a pocket timetable. 10.33. "'There's generally four hours to wait, "'for we're due in at 6.15. "'But this old hearse will be lucky if it's in by nine. "'His forecast was correct. "'We rumbled out of the hills, into the highlands, "'and caught a glimpse of the North Sea. "'Then we were hung up while a long goods train passed down the line. "'It was almost dark when at last we crawled into Muirtown Station "'and disgorged our load of hot and weary soldiery. "'I bade an ostentatious farewell to Linklater. "'Very pleased to have met you.' "'I'll see you later on the Edinburgh train. "'I'm for a walk to stretch my legs, and a bite of supper. "'I was very determined that the 10.30 for the South should leave without me. "'My notion was to get a bed and meal in some secluded inn, "'and walk out next morning and pick up a slow train down the line. "'Linklater had disappeared toward the guard's van to find his luggage, "'and the soldiers were sitting on their packs "'with that air of being utterly and finally lost and neglected "'which characterizes the British fighting man on a journey.' I gave up my ticket and, since I had come off a northern train, walked unhindered into the town. It was market night and the streets were crowded. Blue jackets from the fleet, country folk into shop, and every kind of military detail thronged the pavements. Fish hawkers were crying their wares, and there was a tattered Malian piper making the night hideous in a corner. I took a tortuous route and finally fixed on a modest-looking public house in a back street. When I inquired for a room, I could find no one in authority, but a slatternly girl informed me that there was one vacant bed and that I could have ham and eggs in the bar. So after hitting my head violently against a crossbeam, I stumbled down some steps and entered a frowsty little place smelling of spilt beer and stale tobacco. The promised ham and eggs proved impossible. There were no eggs to be had in Muirtown that night, but I was given cold mutton and a pint of indifferent ale. There was nobody in the place but two farmers drinking hot whiskey and water and discussing with a somber interest the rise in the price of feeding stuffs. I ate my supper and was just preparing to find the whereabouts of my bedroom when through the street door there entered a dozen soldiers. In a second the quiet place became a babble. The men were strictly sober, but they were in that temper of friendliness which demands a libation of some kind. One was prepared to stand treat. He was the leader of the lot and it was to celebrate the end of his leave that he was entertaining his pals. From where I sat I could not see him, but his voice was dominant. "'What's your fancy, Jack? Beer for you, Andrew. A pint and a dram for me. This is better than Von Blong and Von Grouge. Davy man, when I'm sitting in those estimates, as they call them, I often long for a good Scots public.' The voice was familiar. I shifted my seat to get a view of the speaker, and then I hastily drew back. It was the Scots Fusilier I had clipped on the jaw in defending Gresson after the Glasgow meeting. But by a strange fatality, he had caught sight of me. "'Was that in the corner?' he cried, leaving the bar to stare at me. Now it is a queer thing, 
"'But if you've once fought with a man, "'though only for a few seconds, "'you remember his face, "'and the scrap in Glasgow had been under a lamp. "'The jock recognized me well enough. "'By God!' he cried. "'If this is not a bit of luck. "'Boys, here's the man I fought with in Glasgow. "'You mind I tell you about it? "'He laid me out, "'and it's my turn to do the same with him. "'I had a notion I was going to make a night of it. "'There's nobody can hit Gordy Hamilton "'without Gordy getting him back. "'Get up, man, "'for I'm going to knock the head off you.' "'I duly got up, "'and with the best composure I could muster, "'looked him in the face. "'You're mistaken, my friend. "'I never clapped eyes on you before.' "'and I never was in Glasgow in my life. "'That's a damn lie,' said the Fusilier. "'You're the man, and if you're not, "'you're like enough him to need a hiding. "'Confound your nonsense,' I said. "'I've no quarrel with you, "'and I've better things to do "'than be scrapping with a stranger in a public house.' "'Have you say? "'Well, I'll learn you better. "'I'm going to hit you, "'and then you'll have to fight "'whether you want it or not. "'Tam, hold my jacket, "'and see that my drink's not scaled.' This was an infernal nuisance, for a row here would bring in the police, and my dubious position would be laid bare. I thought of putting up a fight, for I was certain I could lay out the jack a second time, but the worst of that was that I did not know where the thing would end. I might have to fight the whole lot of them, and that meant a noble public shindy. I did my best to speak my opponent fair. I said we were all good friends, and offered to stand drinks for the party. But the fusilier's blood was up, and he was spoiling for a row. "'ably abetted by his comrades. "'He had his time off now "'and was stamping in front of me with doubled fists. "'I did the best thing I could think of in the circumstances. "'My seat was close to the steps "'which led to the other part of the inn. "'I grabbed my hat, darted up them, "'and before they realized what I was doing "'had bolted the door behind me. "'I could hear pandemonium break loose in the bar. "'I slipped down a dark passage to another "'which ran at right angles to it "'and which seemed to connect the street door of the inn itself "'with the back premises.' I could hear voices in the little hall, and that stopped me short. One of them was Linklater's, but he was not talking as Linklater had talked. He was speaking educated English. I heard another with a Scots accent, which I took to be the landlord's, and a third which sounded like some superior sort of constables, very prompt and official. I heard one phrase, too, from Linklater. He calls himself McCaskey. Then they stopped, for the turmoil from the bar had reached the front door. The Fusilier and his friends were looking for me by the other entrance. The attention of the men in the hall was distracted, and that gave me a chance. There was nothing for it but the back door. I slipped through it into a courtyard and almost tumbled over a tub of water. I planted the thing so that anyone coming that way would fall over it. A door led me into an empty stable and from that into a lane. It was all absurdly easy, but as I started down the lane I heard a mighty row and the sound of angry voices. "'Someone had gone into the tub, and I hoped it was Linklater. "'I had taken a liking to the Fusilier Jack. "'There was the beginning of a moon somewhere, but that lane was very dark. "'I ran to the left, for on the right it looked like a cul-de-sac. "'This brought me into a quiet road of two-storied cottages "'which showed at one end the lights of a street, "'so I took the other way, "'for I wasn't going to have the whole population of Muir Town "'on the hue and cry after me. "'I came into a country lane, "'and I also came into the van of the Pursuit.' "'which must have taken a shortcut. "'They shouted when they saw me, "'but I had a small start "'and legged it down that road "'in the belief that I was making for open country. "'That was where I was wrong. "'The road took me round to the other side of the town, "'and just when I was beginning to think I had a fair chance, "'I saw before me the lights of a signal box 
and a little to the left of it the lights of the station. In half an hour's time the Edinburgh train would be leaving, but I had made that impossible. Behind me I could hear the pursuers, giving tongue like hound puppies, for they had attracted some pretty drunken gentlemen to their party. I was badly puzzled where to turn, when I noticed outside the station a long line of blurred lights, which could only mean a train with the carriage blinds down. It had an engine attached, and seemed to be waiting for the addition of a couple of trucks to start. It was a wild chance, but the only one I saw. I scrambled across a piece of waste ground, climbed an embankment, and found myself on the metals. I ducked under the couplings, and got on the far side of the train away from the enemy. Then, simultaneously, two things happened. I heard the yells of my pursuers a dozen yards off, and the train jolted into motion. I jumped on the footboard and looked into an open window. The compartment was packed with troops, six aside and two men sitting on the floor, and the door was locked. I dived head foremost through the window and landed on the neck of a weary warrior who had just dropped off to sleep. While I was falling, I made up my mind on my conduct. I must be intoxicated, for I knew the infinite sympathy of the British soldier towards those thus overtaken. They pulled me to my feet, and the man I descended on rubbed his skull and blasphemously demanded explanations. "'Gentlemen,' I hiccuped. "'I apologize. "'I was late for this blighted train, "'and must be in Edinburgh tomorrow, "'or I'll get the sack. "'I apologize. "'If I've if I've hurt my friend's head, "'I will kiss it and make it well.' "'At this there was a great laugh. "'You'd better accept, Pete,' said one. "'It's the first time anybody offered to kiss your ugly head.' "'A man asked me who I was, "'and I appeared to be searching for a card case.' "'I lost it,' I groaned. "'Lost, and so's my wee bag, and my bashed, and I bashed my Polish, and I bashed my po-hat. "'I'm an awful sight, gentlemen, an awful warning to be in time for trains. "'I'm John Johnstone, managing clerk to Messrs. Waters, Brown, and F. Stone, "'923 Charlotte Street, Edinburgh. "'I've been up north seeing my mama. "'You should be in France,' said one man. "'I wished I was, but they wouldn't let me. "'Mr. Johnstone,' they said, "'you're no damn good. "'You've varicose veins and a bad heart,' they said. "'So I says, "'Good morning, gentlemen. "'Don't blame me if the country's ruined.' "'That's what I said. "'I had by this time occupied the only remaining space left on the floor. "'With the philosophy of their race, "'the men had accepted my presence "'and were turning again to their own talk. "'The train had got up speed.' and as I judged it to be a special of some kind, I looked for a few stoppings. Moreover, it was not a corridor carriage, but one of the old-fashioned kind, so I was safe for a time from the unwelcome attention of conductors. I stretched my legs below the seat, rested my head against the knees of a brawny gunner, and settled down to make the best of it. My reflections were not pleasant. I had got down too far below the surface, and had the naked feeling you get in a dream when you think you've gone to the theater in your nightgown. I had had three names in two days, and as many characters. I felt as if I had no home or position anywhere, and was only a stray dog with everybody's hand and foot against me. It was an ugly sensation, and it was not redeemed by any acute fear or any knowledge of being mixed up in some desperate drama. I knew I could easily go on to Edinburgh, and when the police made trouble, as they would, a wire to Scotland Yard would settle matters in a couple of hours." "'there wasn't a suspicion of bodily danger to restore my dignity. "'The worst that could happen would be that Ivory would hear of my being befriended by the authorities. 
and the part I'd settled to play would be impossible. He would certainly hear I had the greatest respect for his intelligence service. Yet that was bad enough. So far I had done well. I'd put Gresson off the scent, I'd found out what Boulevard wanted to know, and I had only to return ostentatiously to London to have won out on the game. I told myself all that, but it didn't cheer my spirits. I was feeling mean and hunted, and very cold about the feet. But I have a tough knuckle of obstinacy in me which makes me unwilling to give up a thing till I'm fairly choked off it. The chances were bad against me. The Scottish police were actively interested in my movements, and would be ready to welcome me at my journey's end. I had ruined my hat, and my clothes, as Amos had observed, were not respectable. I had got rid of a four-day's beard the night before, but I had cut myself in the process, and what with my weather-beaten face and tangled hair looked more like a tinker than a decent bagman. I thought with longing of my portmanteau in the Pentland Hotel, Edinburgh, and the neat blue serge suit and the clean linen that reposed in it. It was no case for a subtle game, for I held no cards. Still, I was determined not to chuck my hand until I was forced to. If the train stopped anywhere, I would get out, and trust to my own wits and the standing luck of the British Army for the rest. That chance came just after dawn, when we halted at a little junction. I got up yawning and tried to open the door, till I remembered it was locked. Thereupon I stuck my legs out of the window on the side away from the platform, and was immediately seized upon by a sleepy Seaforth who thought I contemplated suicide. "'Let me go,' I said. "'I'll be back in a jiffy.' "'Let him go, Jack,' said another voice. "'You know what a man's like when he's been on the bash. "'The cold air will sober him.' "'I was released, and after some gymnastics, "'dropped on the metals and made my way round the rear of the train. "'As I clambered on the platform, it began to move, "'and a face looked out of one of the back carriages. "'It was Linklater, and he recognized me. "'He tried to get out.' "'but the door was promptly slammed by an indignant porter. "'I heard him protest, and he kept his head out "'till the train went round the curb. "'That cooked my goose all right. "'He would wire to the police from the next station. "'Meantime, in that clean, bare, chilly place, "'there was only one traveller. "'He was a slim young man with a kit bag and a gun case. "'His clothes were beautiful, a green Hornberg hat, "'a smart green tweed overcoat, "'and boots as brightly polished as a horse chestnut.' I caught his profile as he gave up his ticket, and to my amazement, I recognized it. The station master looked askance at me as I presented myself, dilapidated and disheveled, to the official gaze. I tried to speak in a tone of authority. Who's the man who has just gone out? Where's your ticket? I had no time to get one at Muirtown, and as you see, I've left my baggage behind me. Take it out of that pound, and I'll come back for the change. I want to know if that was Sir Archibald Roylance. He looked suspiciously at the note. I think that's the name. He's a captain up at the fleeing school. What are you wanting with him? I charged through the booking office and found my man about to enter a big gray motor car. Archie! I cried, and beat him on the shoulders. He turned round sharply. What the devil? Who are you? And then recognition crept into his face, and he gave a joyous shout. My holy aunt! The general disguised as Charlie Chaplin! "'Can I drive you anywhere, sir?' "'Thanks for joining us for Chapter 8 of Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. "'Join us next week for Chapter 9. "'I take the wings of a dove. "'We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. "'Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.'